Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 254, Leo XIII. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. So, last week's papacy was the second longest in history after St. Peter, and it featured incredible upheavals around the world, including the loss of the papal states and the pope as a self-declared prisoner of the Vatican. And Blessed Pius IX's reaction to the changes around him moved from a moderation to a greater and greater intransigence as the time wore on. At his death in 1878, the cardinals were looking for someone who could more adroitly navigate the, the changing modern world, keeping the church's traditions while at the same time dialoguing with this ever-changing reality all around them. And their choice seemed to fit the bill. The cardinals turned to Cardinal Vincenzo Pecci. He was politically moderate but intellectually brilliant. He was confronting the ostensibly atheistic and Masonic arguments for democracy by posing that democracy could only really flourish in a Catholic worldview. He had been a good, humble, and faithful bishop in Perugia for 30 years, an experienced pastor, and recently he had moved to Rome and been appointed the Cardinal Carmen Lengo. But he was already 68 years old, and he had asked for the transfer to Rome as a sort of retirement. Now, this was a plus for some after the lengthy pontificate of Pope Pius IX. It might mean that this interlude might be a little bit shorter, uh, a reasonable amount of time with a good, moderate pope. But boy, how wrong they were. Cardinal Pecci was elected quickly on the third ballot, and he took the name Leo XIII out of admiration for Pope Leo XII. He had wanted to have the installation and opening blessing take place in St. Peter's Square, like we see it today on the news. But the Italian government was worried about riots, and so he was installed in the relatively small ceremony in the Sistine Chapel. It was one sign of how different things were. Now that the Pope still occupied a very strange place on the international stage, and Italy claimed everything, every part of Rome. But before moving on to Leo XIII's pontificate, let's go back to where he came from. Vincenzo Giochino Pecci was born on March 2nd, 1810, in Campinetto Romano, just south of Rome. His family was local nobility and a fairly well-to-do. He was one of seven kids, the second youngest, and thus was naturally more inclined to enter the church. He and his brother were sent to study for the priesthood together in Viterbo at a Jesuit college, where he distinguished himself as a good student with a good character. His mother died in 1824, and the young Vincenzo Pecci moved to Rome, first to the Collegio Romano, then to the Academia, which is the short term for the Pontifical Academy of Nobles, which was beginning at that time to become what it is today, a school for Vatican diplomats. He graduated with the usual degrees in canon and civil law and was ordained to the priesthood New Year's Eve, 1837. Now, his first major assignment after ordination was to serve in the papal bureaucracy in Benevento, a territory of the papal states which was completely surrounded by the kingdom of the two Sicilies and fairly deep in its territory. The city had been conquered by Napoleon's forces and given to the kingdom of the two Sicilies, but then had been returned to the church in 1815 at the Congress of Vienna. The pressure was being placed on Rome to give the city up to the Sicilians, and on top of that, the area was full of radicals preaching Italian unification. It was a dicey situation. He proved pretty reliable. So Pope Gregory XVI appointed him next to be the delegate to Spoleto and then to Perugia. In 1842, Father Pecci was appointed the Apostolic Nuncio to Belgium, and shortly thereafter, he was ordained an archbishop and moved north. Now, if you remember from past episodes, Belgium was in a tricky situation as well. It was independent from the 
Protestant Netherlands and declared that independence in, in 1830, but its government was much more in accord with the liberal thoughts of the time, and in particular wanted a more direct separation of church and state. The Vatican wanted to maintain a church presence in the Belgian government and was especially insistent on making sure schools taught the faith. Working with the Belgian bishops, Archbishop Pecci was able to put pressure on the government to side more with the church, but the Belgian government didn't appreciate it. They wrote a secret letter to the Secretary of State of the Vatican asking for Archbishop Pecci to be removed from his position. And another letter criticizing him by the Austrian ambassador to Belgium also made its way to Rome, and the pressure to move him was too much. He was then instead appointed Bishop of Perugia in January of 1846, a position he would hold for 32 years. Now, part of the reason for staying in one place that long is what happened in 1846 at the exact time of his move to Perugia, and that was the election of Blessed Pius IX. In fact, when he was on his way back to move to Perugia, he stopped in Rome to meet with Pope Gregory XVI, but the Pope had just died. Now, they certainly weren't enemies, but they weren't necessarily friends either, and while the Pope seemed to have had a favorable view of Archbishop Pecci, his Secretary of State didn't. Archbishop Pecci tended to disagree with the Pope's Secretary of State, Cardinal Antonelli. He was more moderate, more pastoral, and Cardinal Antonelli was more hardline. And even though in his diocese there are all sorts of Italian radicals and groups of the Carbonari, the secret Masonic group seeking to undermine the Papal States, Archbishop Pecci was not as hardline as the attitude in Rome. His approach was to work on forming priests in his diocese, especially equipping them with the intellectual and spiritual power needed to push back rather than a strict top-down attack against the radicals. Pope Gregory XVI had meant to make him a cardinal when he sent him to Perugia, but his death prevented that honor. And then in Pope Pius IX's flight to Gaeta and all the challenges presented around that time, postponed it again until finally he was made a cardinal in 1853 when he was named the Cardinal Priest of San Crisagno. Now, that fleeting reference just now to the troubles the Papal States faced in the middle of the 19th century brings us to the Italian Unification Wars. Unfortunately, many of the governors sent from the Vatican to be civil leaders in Perugia, a position, if you remember, Cardinal Pecci once held, were not that great. Cardinal Pecci frequently complained about them back to the Secretary of State. And that bad government prompted the various Masonic groups in Perugia to rise up against the Vatican in 1859. They kicked out the Papal government in uh, for a week, until Vatican troops came back and violently and bloodily put down the rebellion. Cardinal Pecci was not pleased with how violent it was and made sure the Cardinal Secretary of State knew, but the papal control was not to last long. In 1860, the armies of Piedmont Sardinia and the King Victor Emmanuel II conquered Perugia and annexed it to the new kingdom of Italy. Cardinal Pecci protested, but moderately and diplomatically to the king. He fought attempts to curtail church authority and the removal of many religious orders from Perugia, but in the end he was practical. He didn't want this situation, but he couldn't change it, so he had to do the best he could. With the loss of a lot of religious priests, he had a shortage of clergy in various parts of his diocese, so he formed groups of diocesan missionary priests who would go where was needed at the time. In all the battles with Italy and with the modern world in general which followed, he was moderate in his tone, but Catholic in his message. He saw a need to work with the Italian government, but not to give up key prerogatives of the church. He wanted to embrace papal authority in the First Vatican Council, while also emphasizing, ahead of his time, the role of the College of Bishops in the magisterium of the church. He was not a modernist, but he was pastoral, and he turned to the lay faithful in his diocese to help protect the church. He saw them, not only the clergy, as part of the evangelical mission of the church, and he called them to that mission. Now, as was already mentioned, after 30 years or so of work in Perugia, Cardinal Pecci was getting tired, and he asked to be assigned to a new position in Rome. He was moved in 1877 to be Cardinal Carmen Lengo, and then in 1878, he was elected Pope. 
took the name Leo XIII, and even though he was tired and already 68 years old, he would be Pope for the next 25 years. Now, if you remember from last episode, Blessed Pius IX had declared himself a prisoner of the Vatican and refused to negotiate or acknowledge the authority of Italy. The Italian government was for the most part anti-clerical and Masonic, but King Victor Emmanuel II, before his death, had shown signs of wanting a reconciliation. Now, Pope Leo XIII was open to it, but not if it meant a total defeat for the church. He outlined his approach in his first encyclical, which is called Inscrutabile Dei Concilio, or On the Evils of Society, which he wrote in 1878. In the encyclical, he writes, For, from the very beginning of our pontificate, the sad sight has presented itself to us of the evils by which the human race is oppressed on every side, the widespread subversion of the primary truths on which, as it was on its foundations, human society is based, the obstinacy of mind that will not brook any authority, however lawful, the endless sources of disagreement whence arrive civil strife and the ruthless wars and bloodshed, the contempt of law which molds characters and is the shield of righteousness, the insatiable craving for things perishable with complete forgetfulness of things eternal, leading up to the desperate madness whereby so many wretched beings in all directions scruple not to lay violent hands upon themselves, the reckless mismanagement, waste, and misappropriation of the public funds, the shamelessness of those who full of treachery make semblance of being champions of a country of freedom and every kind of right, in fine the deadly kind of plague which infects in its inmost recesses, allowing it no respite and foreboding ever fresh disturbances and final disaster. Now he continues that it's clear that this disturbance comes from the despising of the authority of the church by those in power, and he asserts that the temporal authority of the Roman pontiff must be restored, but he was open to some compromises. In particular, the Italian government had to throw out its anti-clerical laws, had to divest itself of Freemasonry, and the Pope needed to have at least the city of Rome as his own political territory, independent of the Kingdom of Italy. Now, the process of sorting all this out took a long time and was not accomplished in the Pope's own lifetime. It occurred in public and in private back-channel communications. The Pope, for example, in 1884 wrote an encyclical condemning, again, Freemasonry and outlining the need for Catholics to improve their own institutions rather than getting sucked into anti-clerical secret societies. Likewise, to put pressure on the Italian government, Pope Leo continued the process, which had actually begun under Blessed Pius IX, of demanding Catholics in Italy not participate in elections. But as I already said, it won't be until 1929 that the political situation of the Vatican is finally settled. Which brings us to the other pressing issue facing the Vatican, which is basically the rest of the world. Pius IX's response to modern society was one of pretty much blanket condemnation. After his experience of being thrown out of Rome and then being made a prisoner of the Vatican, he retreated to the older position of support for the reestablishment or strengthening of monarchies against modern republicanism. His documents were the syllabus of errors, which condemned many modern political phenomena. Leo XIII took a different tact. He didn't negate any of the church's teaching doctrinally, far from it, but he showed through his encyclicals that the modern world's purported love of freedom and equality only makes sense in a Christian context and based on a Christian anthropology. In his encyclical Libertas on Human Liberty, he writes, We have shown that whatsoever is good in the, those liberties is as ancient as truth itself, and that the church has always most willingly approved and practiced that good. But whatsoever has been added as new to it is to tell the plain truth of a vitiated kind the fruit of the disorders of the age, and of an insatiate longing after novelties. Liberty only makes sense in a Christian worldview, and his encyclical praises what may be praised and denounces the modern errors that have creeped in. Likewise, the economic tumult of the time he addresses in his famous encyclical Rerum Novarum on the duty and rights of labor. 
Here he denounces the modern ideologies like socialism and communism, but at the same time shows that the modern labor, mo labor movements and the existence of trade unions can fit into a Christian worldview. With these intellectual attempts at showing the modern world that the church understood and could speak the modern language, while at the same time holding perennial truths, the Pope tried to negotiate with modern governments. France was the most challenging. The Third French Republic was tremendously anti-Catholic, and any attempt at bringing France into more concretely back into the fold seemed doomed to failure. Nevertheless, Pope Leo tried to make inroads, both through the work of his vibrant Secretary of State, Cardinal Rampolla, and through several encyclicals that he sent to the French church. Leo wanted the French Catholics to support the Republican government as legitimate, but many did not. Many only thought that the overthrown monarchy were the only legitimate rulers of France. You have to remember that the church and the monarchy in France were so tied together, both by the monarch himself over the centuries, but also by the revolutionaries who had attacked both together and saw the two as two sides of the same coin. So it was tough for French Catholics to support the Republic, and consequently the Republic didn't like French Catholics. In the 1880s, they once again expelled the Jesuits from France, as well as many other religious orders. And the tension between the Catholics and the French government was exacerbated in the famous Dreyfus Affair. This was like the O.J. Simpson trial of its time. It divided the French people along both political and religious lines. Alfred Dreyfus was a Jewish French military officer who was accused of treasonously passing military secrets to the Germans and was convicted and sentenced to penal servitude. And it came to light that most likely he didn't do it, someone else did. And it went through several appeals, and he was convicted a second time, and then finally, in 1906, he was exonerated. And the whole time, the country was split between Catholics and Catholic clergy, who were mainly against Dreyfus, and it has to be said in part because of anti-Semitism, and then anti-Catholic pro-Republicans who were for Dreyfus. The entire scandal, which went on for almost a decade, prevented any rapprochement with the church in France. In 1901, the French Republic passed a law which forbade any non-government-approved religious orders from operating in France, and especially went after Catholic institutions of education. And it was looking, towards the beginning of the 1900s, that France would completely secularize itself and completely separate church and state. The Pope's efforts were a little bit more successful in Germany, which, before his papacy, had been undergoing Bismarck's Kulturkampf, a series of anti-Catholic laws and programs designed to root Catholicism out of Germany. Leo XIII appealed directly to the new Kaiser starting on the very first day of his papacy. Playing off German fears of even more radical ideologies like communism and socialism, the Pope convinced Bismarck to repeal most of the worst anti-Catholic laws. Now, if you can't tell by now, but Pope Leo XIII was a prolific encyclical writer. We've already heard from a couple, but there are more. His encyclical Arcanum was written to strengthen the Catholic family life. It was one of the first family-devoted encyclicals in the history of the Church. His encyclical Eterni Patris, early in his papacy in 1879, promoted the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas and scholasticism as the source of authentic renewal in theology. Following Eterni Patris, he established what's known today as the Leonine Commission, which studied the work of St. Thomas and promoted its study. Thomism, according to the Pope, was the theological school of the Church, and St. Thomas was the universal doctor. He writes... Among the scholastic doctors, the chief and master of all towers, Thomas Aquinas, who, as Cajetan observes, because he was most venerated of the ancient doctors of the church in a certain way, seems to have inherited the intellect of all. The doctrines of those illustrious men, like the scattered members of a body, Thomas collected together and cemented, distributed in wonderful order, and so increased with important additions that it is rightly and deservedly esteemed the special bulwark and glory of the Catholic faith. Likewise, the Pope's encyclical Proventissimus Deus reacted to the modern historical critical method of studying the scripture and established the Pontifical Biblical Commission and inspired the foundation of the Ecole Biblique in Jerusalem. 
Now, the Pope lasted for a long time, into his 90s, hard at work addressing the modern challenges facing the church. He lasted so long in the papacy that he is believed to be the person born earliest in history to be filmed. So I can add a link maybe in the show description uh, where you can see what he looked like in motion picture. He was probably the person born earliest that was filmed, the, the the oldest person, I guess. But finally, in 1903, he fell deathly ill. He died after a couple of weeks of suffering on July 20th, 1903. His long pontificate was the third longest in history after St. Peter and his immediate predecessor, Blessed Pius IX. He was buried in the Basilica of St. John Lateran and was succeeded by Pope St. Pius X. We will talk about him next time. Thank you for listening to Abemus Papam. You can find the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you and God bless you.